0: Hi, I'm Gordon Lampier with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists, shaping the real estate industry, and as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Colby Culbertson. Colby is founder of Culbertson Holdings, a commercial real estate firm focused on development and investments in the Southwest, Sunbelt, and Midwest. On the podcast, we discuss the state of deal financing, best practices navigating the high interest rate environment, and how to get more out of your next investment. It's well worth a listen. Colby, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Gordon. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So my name is Colby Colbertson. I'm born and raised in the Dallas, Texas area. I went to Texas Tech. I spent about five or six years out in West Texas. Uh, back when, I like to say back when the oil was cool, I spent <laughs> a couple of years working for Halliburton uh, back in Midland, Texas. Um, since then, I've come back to Dallas, and I've been in kind of the financial services, real estate space ever since. It's been about probably six to almost seven years since I've been back in Dallas. Um, and then the last five years or so, I've been specifically in the uh, commercial real estate and real estate financing space. Well, oil
0: isn't too different from the real estate world, but uh, I'm curious, what got you into real estate? Because um we all have our journeys that get us there. What was really the uh, the thing that started you off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one, I think Texas always has, you know, quite a big presence for, for folks that are interested in real estate. So the mixture of friends and family being involved, seeing it firsthand, and very good friends of mine were already uh, very much involved in, uh, you know, the construction space, uh, the sales side, wholesaling side, which obviously piqued my interest. You know, good friends of mine that are already being or finding success really piqued my interest. And uh it, it snowballed quite fast for me. You know, I got my start swinging hammers doing demolition uh, with single families. And then as that went, found higher ground quicker than most, I would say. And next thing you know, uh, had, you know, gotten my license a while back, flipped a couple quick houses got enough cash in my pocket to where I could quit my nine-to-five, as they like to call it, and then snowballed into what I do now. So it, it happened relatively quick, but you know, uh, I really had a good passion for it and, and a knack for it, frankly. So uh, here I am. So can
0: you tell us a little bit about what you do now? Um, look, uh, real estate isn't all about swinging hammers. So uh, what is, uh, what's uh, your path going forward?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So, what I primarily focus on is organizing debt and equity for commercial transactions. My primary focal point for asset classes is going to be multifamily, uh, self-storage, some of the core commercial assets, as people like to say. Um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, have a little bit of trouble identifying the best product that's available because you know it's not like it is a pull off the shelf. Type of product, it is something that you need to work through, understand the numbers behind it, and and obviously the end goal too, which all of those variables tie in quite well when you're uh, when you're organizing the the, the financing on these products.
0: So, can you tell us a little bit about how you tie products together and finance them? Because I think there's a lot of people, even within the real estate world, that sometimes. Uh, when, as soon as you start talking a lot of numbers, people just start uh, kind of spacing out and their eyes gloss over. So, what does a, a deal financing process kind of look like? And, and can you can you walk us through what a typical deal looks like?
1: Absolutely. So, what I would say too to, to answer it kind of in a few different categories here, you know, when people categorize commercial real estate, the first thing they do is do it by asset class. I would say the same thing goes for how you finance them, right? Because with multifamily, for example, there's government regulated programs like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, and also, uh, you know, conventional products like banks and unconventional non QM, as they like to say for debt funds. So first I would say identify the asset class based on the asset class. You're going to have a path forward based on various products that are available to you, whether that's the agencies, which is Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac or different debt funds that may be a little bit more construction or value-add focused, bridge loans, as they like to say. So what I'd like to do is, one, identify what asset class the borrower or the buyer is first interested in. From there, I'll organize a few different documents, your profit and loss statements, aka your P&Ls, your rent roll, any CapEx that's been completed or anticipated, any CapEx that you're looking to do. And then what's called a pro forma. Your pro forma is how the property is going to be performing once your project is completed. Once you you work out the deferred maintenance, which is um, some operational deficiencies in the property. Um, And then from there, you're able to identify how the property is underwriting and what you need to do in order to get it, quote unquote, stabilized, which we can get into a little bit later. But it's different metrics on the underwriting that you can uh, essentially understand how the property is performing.
0: So I know you mentioned P&L sheets. What, do, what is it that you're looking for in a p l sheet? Are there certain red or green flags that are particularly important?
1: Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And what I would say is in a P&L sheet, obviously, the two biggest indicators are going to be your income over your expenses. That is a very broad way to outline <laughs> it because there's many ways to make money. From an income perspective, especially with multifamily. We'll just we'll stick with multifamily specifically and we can broaden that if we like. With multifamily specifically, there's different uh, avenues of revenue like uh, reimbursement of utilities, aka rubs. You can do parking income, laundry income, application fees, pet deposits. The list goes on. And you can you can really expand that many different ways. It's gonna come down to what your management company is comfortable to do, the size of the asset. The type of profile is there, you know. If you're working on a C type of property, you're not necessarily going to be advertising, you know, like 5G internet and some kind of awesome trash valet service. It's not really going to be as as attractive as it would be to say like a Class A multifamily. And then break that down to, to expenses: your property taxes, your insurance, your R which is your repair and maintenance contract services like internet, landscaping security, things like that, your GNA, which is your your standard just kind of paper trail, general administration type expenses, uh, payroll. I mean, I could, I could go for days on that, but that, the top five expenses that I'm typically looking for are your property taxes, insurance, RNN, GNA, and your contract services. If you can really outline what those expenses are, where you're at today, where you should be, and then couple that with your income, commonly you can understand where your property is performing today and also based on where kind of a market expense ratio is which typically you want to be somewhere between 30 and say 45 percent. if you can stay within that window that's kind of how you identify where you should be if you are above that expense ratio there's likely somewhere in there you could probably tweak work with your management company and figure out how to achieve that goal
0: so Talking about achieving goals, um, and, I, and I know we want to come back to talking a little bit more about uh, the P&L sheet, but h- how do you go and, and tr- achieve a goal in terms of getting the deal done? So you've gone forward, and, and you're an investor, and, and you sit there and you say, I-, I want to reach out and get this deal. You, you reach out to Colby. Um, how does that process work?
1: Yeah, so... A lot of, a lot of business that we do is either a with, with direct to owners looking to identify maybe some refinance options, or if they're maybe working with a real estate broker and trying to figure out how they can agree on a price, right? So how it's underwriting is going to be a big indication of how it's going to sell in the market, right? So for example, if someone comes to me, we'll just say Gordon, Gordon's the seller. Gordon comes to me at the properties. Hey, look, I'm working with say GREA. And they're looking to sell my property at, say, a six cap, five cap. I'll underwrite the deal based on the P&Ls they have. And then based on the price that they're looking for, we can kind of back into understanding, one, how the property is underwriting against the, the expected sale price. And then also, two, I'll be able to take that property with the financials, with the market data, a myriad of different pieces of information that will be helpful to a lender. And I can give them an indication of how it's going to be Financed in the marketplace, which is also a big factor of how it's going to sell. If you can get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, it's going to be a much easier process to go to the market. That's a very streamlined process: thirty-year AM, fixed rate, interest only. You know, higher leverage a lot of a lot of times. Um, If it is underperforming, which a debt service coverage ratio is pretty much a good indication of how it is uh, underwriting. A one-two-five, one point two-five is kind of the benchmark. If it's below that, especially if it's significantly below that, which is a pretty common practice given that there's a little bit of a gap between seller's expectation and borrow ability in the marketplace, commonly there's a gap there. So if you're sub one two five or even sub 1.0, it'd be very difficult to go with an agency product getting the leverage that you need, right? Because the less leverage you have, the more cash you put in. More cash you put in diminishes your cash on cash return. Everybody's heard those buzzwords, right? So when you're going to the when you're going into the marketplace and you have a DSCR that's a zero point eight six, you're very limited to what you can do. So what I would do, I would go to a variation of lenders, whether that's a bridge lender, a bank construction product, or even a low leverage agency, and we would go back to Gordon and say, Gordon, look, because of X, Y, and Z, which is commonly your debt service coverage ratio, your debt yield and lending products available, I feel this is where your selling price is. This is the type of lending product you should you should pursue or advertise to your buyers, and that we would use that information to potentially go to the market.
0: How have you seen um, the debt market and the leverage market kind of change in the last, uh, you know, I would say thirty-six months?
1: That's, uh, that's the golden question right there too, because here's, here's a piece of information that I'll put in perspective. You know, back in 2018, when I started specifically focusing on the debt markets, I was, I was getting rates that were high fours, mid fives. And if I got you a sub five rate, I was a hero. Right. But then come day 2020, 2021, if I wasn't getting you a sub four rate, I wasn't even in the picture. Right. So that obviously drastically changed what goes down must come up just like Newton's law. What goes up must come down. So, you know, it, it is very common practice for where we're at today, if you were, were to look on the grand scheme of things. So I think we're getting back to normal. Realistically, the days of the utopia of 2% rates, 3% rates are likely behind us, at least for a significant period of time. Um, But realistically, we can play ball with rates in the high fours, mid fives. You know, they've been doing it for much longer than you and I have been around, especially playing this game. But the rates do affect the underwriting. The higher the rate, the, the less leverage. You know, it's inversely related a lot of times. You have to really have some significant cash flow if your rate is not necessarily affecting your bottom line. Um, I would I would be willing to put some money on if your rate's going up, your bottom line goes down you would have to really be uh, really be humming from an operation standpoint that not not affect you. Um, but what I would say is this, there are different ways to offset that, right? Especially with agency lending today, you know, treasuries today, I think set like three point, the 10 years at like 3.6, 3.5, give or take. A lot of times, uh, m- most agency lenders are doing 200 over the 10 year. So 5.5, 5.6. If it's a little bit of a larger loan, you can even get a little bit lower than 5.5 couple that with some interest only and you know lenders are savvy too they've been doing this a long time longer than you and I have been in the business so they've been they've seen the ups and downs and they know how to waiver a lot of the the circumstances that are happening in the market so they're doing longer term interest only they're doing uh, longer amortizations Fannie Mae is a 35 year amortization you can do up to five seven ten years interest only depending on what you're working on so it really comes down to The borrower strategy, because if they're looking to get in, they have a purpose as far as capex, deferred maintenance, different items like that. It doesn't necessarily need to be in a loan for five, seven, 10 years. If you have confidence that you're going to get your job done within 24 to 36 months, my recommendation would probably be a five year deal or less, or to use maybe like a bridge loan, which is quote unquote a temporary product, or a bank loan, which you have to accept the fact that it's recourse, but I'll tell you this, Gordon, secret sauce, there's really no such thing as non-recourse. I mean, from a balance sheet perspective, exposure, sure, you're, you're protected there. It's asset-based lending. But I tell you, if you don't do what you say you're going to do, they're going to come take your keys. So, you know, recourse or not, I feel like what borrowers need to understand, buyers, borrowers, is that they should have a purpose in mind. Sure, it may be a higher rate, but if you believe in your project, if you're underwriting from your pro forma levels, make a lot of sense based on how you lay out your interim bridge financing and what your expectation is on the exit, which I know could be questionable, too, because of where rates may be. I think that's the, you know, that's the golden ticket to understand what the buying process.
0: Look, I know we did some financing in 2021 and, and, and got some crazy rates, right? Like there's one building of ours that it was financed at a 1.9, which is pretty nuts um, at least by larger standards but then you know we've done financing deals recently and and the price of money is still outpacing or or, or should say underpacing the price, uh the cost of inflation so it's not like we're in this ridiculously high interest rate percentage it's just mm-hmm. the money isn't as as free as it used to be right sure. um So when when we're looking at this, uh, I think one of the things that that has always kind of baffled me is I think there's a lot of very different ways to finance different deals. And um, I'm curious uh, about unique financing challenges that are related to certain kinds of product. And and some of the speakers we've had recently on the podcast uh, are in the um, asset class, uh, the storage asset class, which I think is a little… more akin to some of the commercial industrial product that I'm more familiar with and I was curious what are your typical real pain points and unique parts of financing for example a, uh, a storage deal
1: I think for a storage deal it's really going to come down to management right so you know a reason why a lot of folks love self storage is the barrier to entry is lower from a cost perspective uh, at the end of the day it's walls and garages right and it makes it a lot easier for an investor to um you know fill a a property like that because at the end of the day self-storage thrives off displacement you get fired from a job self-storage you get a job self-storage you get married self-storage you get divorced self-storage you have a kid self-storage you know so there's a lot of advantages i think as long as you can find a good area that requires the need for self-storage you can do very well and with the management you can do very well um, I think a big factor that people are um, be- becoming a little bit more privy to is having the ability to have climate control. you know doing climate controlled self storage obviously opens up a lot of doors um, for a myriad of different types of types of customers that are available in the area. Uh, but I would say that from a cash flow perspective, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of the financing that's available is very competitive. You can still do you know twenty five year amortizations. Some CMBS products will still do a thirty-year amortization, um, and you can still get the interest-only period. And self-storage commonly leases up pretty quick. It's not like you—you you know, unless you're doing new construction. Commonly, you're taking over a property that already has a level of occupancy when you take it over. So you essentially just have to kind of fine-tune a few things. You know, like I, I know I, see, I know I keep harping on the term management, but I mean, there's no better way to explain it. If you have somebody in there that's constantly making calls, looking over the market, looking at the needs of the market and bringing people in because it's very cost-effective too. I mean, you know what, 25 bucks, 30 bucks for a spot, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes less. It's not like it's very difficult to convince somebody to give up 25 bucks to clean out the garage. You know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of advantages to sell storage if you have a good location, if you have a good management in place and your financing is in order as well
0: look uh management is probably the uh the most under talked about part of the real estate business um i know we had uh, an insurer on just a couple weeks ago who's one of the largest in uh, indiana and he sat there and he's he said insurance rates are almost always highly dictated by management and good management practices Mm -hmm. so um and, and in terms of good practices, one of the biggest things folks talk about from our end, be it the investor end, the broker end, is trying to you know, accomplish those good practices to get rates down. And I'm curious for somebody who might be looking to, uh, to take out uh, financing, what are the best ways that you can prepare an asset for financing uh, so that you can get the most out of that next deal?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question and I harp on this every single deal that I work on. Any new investor that comes to me, there's a buzzword that I say almost every day and that's organization. You got to be organized. Have your P&Ls in order. Don't make it chicken scratch from the back of a notebook. You know, have a good rent roll, have uh, some sort of occupancy trend. You know, for example, if you were to, if you just came out of a lease. Up. This is where we were at in January. This is where we were at in March. This is where we were at. So on and so forth. Like a box score, as most management companies like to call it. So just being organized and also having your entity tax returns, personal tax returns, your personal financial statement, schedule of real estate, bio, all of these items are going to give the lender confidence. Because as you've mentioned, we're in a state of the market that is a little bit unknown, a little bit of uncertainty. And lenders are going to be looking over every deal with a fine-tooth comb. So if you can make their life easier, you know, you're the lender, Gordon. Gordon, here's my personal financial statement. Here's my outline showing I have a net worth of this. Here's my liquidity. Here's my real estate assets. Here's my liabilities. Here's my schedule of real estate, outlining the seven different assets that I own, my leverage, my debt service coverage on each one of these. And here's my interest-only period. Here's when I go to P&I. Here's my bio, my professional background. Here's when I became an investor. Here's who I use as management, so on and so forth. That presentation versus somebody that's coming in there piecemealing. Oh, I'll get it to you tomorrow. Oh, I'll get it to you next week. You could probably imagine the conversation fluidity when you come to a, come to the table with one smooth package, which is what I, I feel like the success that I've had, Gordon, is because of my preparation, organization, being realistic with the underwriting and being able to have that conversation with the lender with confidence, knowing that we have everything that we need, that they're going to, uh, be able to, you know, take down the hall, as I like to say, and get it approved.
0: Look, organization and preparation are definitely huge keys to success. Uh, but I'm curious from kind of a large organizational perspective, um, and I think you, Colby, have a unique perspective on this because you do financing and brokers like myself. We're really experts of our domain. I could tell you all the deals that are going on on you know the northern half of this of the city of Chicago, as well as out into the collar counties, and I really have a good feel for that market. But you have a much larger market in terms of where you're applying financing. And I'm curious what you're starting to see in terms of the deal cycles that are coming out and kind of what what's you're seeing going on in the real estate market right now.
1: Absolutely. So multifamily, I think, is an asset class that is getting a little bit squeezed, uh, frankly. Just, you know, rates are obviously trying to figure itself out. Um, a lot of investors are being a little bit timid to go, Head first, as they would have say two years ago, I think industrial products right now is probably going to be a highly sought after product uh, because of the long term leases, because of the high demand for e commerce, various businesses that are you know production focused, manufacturing focused, uh, logistics focused things like that. As that type of business continues to surge in the marketplace, there's going to be a demand for that type of product. There's a limited amount of supply with an infinite demand for that e-commerce space, which is becoming a, you know, it's becoming a, a stamp, a staple, if you will, in our market. So I would say keep your eye on the industrial industry. Um, and, you know, obviously multifamily is always going to have its place. And I was, I'll, I'll give you a curveball. I would think that in a uh, neighborhood office is going to make a pretty good comeback. I, you know the Bank of America buildings or the Merrill Lynch buildings. I don't know. You know that that top thirty-six floor up. I don't know who's going to be there. But you know, two-story neighborhood office, one-story with four, five, six tenants. All have two-year, three-year, tops five-year leases. There's always going to be a place for that. There's going to be a limited supply of those types of offices there, and there's always going to be small businesses that can't stand for work from home. I'm one of them. So I think that there's going to be a good place where, uh, you know, neighborhood office will always have a place in the market. It's not going to be booming as industrial or multifamily, but I do feel that there's, a, there's going to be a consistent demand for that type of asset class.
0: Yeah, uh, we're definitely seeing that in greater Chicagoland as well. Um, one of the interesting things that we've seen is a huge trend for like 2,000 foot offices, basically kind of. Okay family offices plus admins basically uh or you know your, your classic accountant or law firm that wants to have a couple admins there or small creative offices that are all like within a 10 or 15 minute commute of where the owner lives um and uh, we're seeing a lot of that a lot of you know strategic site location people who don't want that long commute um the uh the big the big, huge, uh, you know, 90s and 80s floor plan offices, those are going to die. Um, but, you know, those unique, small class A buildings that are a little smaller with, you know, uh, based around, uh, you know, that one to 3,000 foot tenant, I think we're going to see a lot of that. So uh, one of the last things that we wanted to touch on before we get to the final four is what do you see as the biggest opportunities going forward? Um, in your space. And I know we mentioned one, which is kind of that smaller scale office and, and, and industrial, but do you see any additional opportunities be it maybe, you know, from the refinancing side, or, um, maybe you're looking at it from a perspective of opportunity that you think the people aren't taking up on, what are you seeing?
1: So two part answer, I would say from a refinance standpoint, this is a great time to reposition your product. If you have some captured equity sitting in your asset, I would say this is a great time to take a look at it, especially if you want to do a long-term refi, because you could pull out that cash, non-taxable income, by the way, get into something maybe long-term like a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, something like that. Let's, let's remember that Fannie Mae's doing 35-year AMS, five years sure. IO, seven years IO. That is some tremendous cash flow. Even if you're at a four and a half percent, now you're at a 5.4, I would say your cash flow probably is going to offset a little bit because of that interest in that 35-year amortization. So from a refi perspective, I would say it'd be advantageous for a borrower to take advantage of that because you can use that money to go do more things. You can likely go make more money today with that cash than you will having it sit there in the property. So from a refinance perspective, that would be my explanation. From an acquisition standpoint, I would say people should keep their eye on either a very distressed properties for a full reposition, whether that's knocking it completely over or buying land, especially in Texas, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, you know, a lot of the more uh, land uh, enriched states, you know, I, myself, I've built, you know, four or five different homes, uh, been a part of several different multifamily redevelopments and, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to find the cash flow, to find that equity multiple that people are accustomed to from, say, 2018 to 2021. Uh, you know, it's a little bit harder to do that when you're uh, just repositioning a, a 1980s or 1990s, early 2000s product. Numbers are pretty skinny when you get to that. But when you're, redeve- when you're developing a property, there's an opportunity to, you know, when you get a land fully entitled, that's new captured equity. When you get the horizontal done, that's new captured equity. And you go vertical, new captured equity, stabilize refinance, captured equity, sell it, captured equity. So you can re hit on a new uh, payout more than once on just one single project. And I think a lot of people just don't understand how to, how to build, how to develop, which I can help with that too. I help people put those you know, sources of uses, budgets, pro formas, market data, resources to do it all the time. So I think that's, a, that's kind of a hidden gem in the market that I feel like a lot of people are overlooking only because they don't know how to do it. But that's where, if you notice, a lot of the players, as I like to say, commonly are usually building something.
0: Uh, I'd like to follow up on that hidden gem. So can you explain a little bit more about how that process works? Because I think there's a lot of people, even some developers, that don't fully understand how you can recapture equity. Uh, and so I'm I'm just um, curious if you could explain that just a little bit more.
1: Absolutely. So, for example, I'll give you a great example. So in uh, Gerald, Texas, which is central Texas, right up I-35 near Waco, working with a group that had unimproved land. Unimproved is exa- exactly how it sounds, right? There's no utilities. There's no zoning, no anything. So to get it fully entitled, you have to get approved zoning. You have to get utilities approved by the city. There's a myriad of different legal factors that have to come into it. Once you get it fully entitled, you ultimately have new captured equity in that land. That land is now worth more than it was when you bought it, when it was unimproved. Okay, So when you go to do your horizontal, so putting in your roadways, you actually put in the the, the pipes for the utilities, uh, do all of your leveling, all that good stuff to where you can be quote unquote shovel ready. I know everybody's heard that term. At that point, you complete that. That's additional. Now it's worth way more than it was when you first bought it unimproved, even more so than it was fully entitled. So now you're shovel ready. A lot of guys even just sell it once they're shovel ready. And usually it's a 1.5 to 2x multiple at that point. So folks that know how to go even further, which by putting your budgets together, your sources and uses, which is basically just a breakdown between... The, the money that you need and how you're going to use it, your sources and your uses. It's just like it sounds. And then you put together your pro forma, which everybody is familiar with. And you go with a lender. A lot of times lenders get very aggressive on vertical financing, some of some at like 80%, some even upwards to 85, depending on the type of lending product that you use. So once you go vertical, you finish the product, stick and brick, whatever you want to do. And then you slap a sign on it called the Oaks or whatever people call it. It's always Oaks or Forest or something like that, uh, Meadows. Um, and at that point, you're, I mean, from from the point you are unimproved to fully entitled to horizontal done, now you have a full building. I mean, you're probably talking 3X, 4X, maybe more. And then you sell that building. I mean, that's, that's how a lot of folks make a substantial amount of capital, uh, amount of money, amount of return, whatever you want to call it. Uh, because they stuck it through, they put all of the resources in place, and they knew what to do from a process standpoint. I mean it's not it's not easy. Nothing is easy in this world. <laughs> but um, you know, working with a guy like myself, I've seen a start to finish full cycle, as people say. I've built it myself. I'm happy to show you some examples of things I've built. I I personally build lakefront short-term rentals uh here in Texas. Um, ongoing, still building a few as we speak. And uh, I've taken full cycle development from large scale multifamily. You know, I personally have organized somewhere between 300 and 350 million of closed loans of which have, you know, some sort of construction component. So very familiar with the process and the variables that you need, whether that's your documentation, you know, your numbers that you need to put together, the resources, whether that's your engineers, architects, uh, builders, managers, operators, managers, operators, whatever that may be. And, uh, you know, it's really about just keeping the, you know, people close and it's a, it's a team effort at the end of the day.
0: So we're going to have to get you uh, back in the future and, and explain a little bit more about that process, but sure. sadly we're reaching, you know, the final four. And, uh, uh, I know it's sad that, that, Uh, you know, we're reaching the final four, but at the same time, uh, it's always uh, a great learning opportunity to not only learn a little bit more about you, but to learn a little bit more about what the future of the financing and and real estate market will be. So the first question that we have, and this is one of my favorites, is 10 years from now, what do you think is going to have changed the most about commercial financing?
1: I think 10 years from now, I believe that you know, no crystal ball here, Gordon, but I believe that rates are going to be at least at a stabilized place. I think the rates will be back to kind of the mid-force, give or take. Um, I do think that the, the more government-regulated programs are going to become more and more competitive because they obviously are competing against banks, non-QM lenders, various products out there that are becoming more and more competitive to compete with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, things like that. You'll start to see them, uh, you know, essentially playing off of each other. So we'll see that happening more and more. I do think that the approval process and the borrowers that, that come to play the game will become a little bit more strenuous because as things become more competitive, the hype, if you will, there's gonna be more people that come in. So the process of which getting approved may be a little bit more detailed, which is fine. Working with a guy like myself, obviously, as I mentioned before, I like to be organized. My presentation is the biggest factor of my 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 work. And then from an asset class perspective, it's, it's going to start being driven a lot more towards residential. Population densities are growing. You know, bigger areas like Texas, Florida, they're growing at such a fast pace. And then obviously other states are being backfilled from that population uh, leaving. So I think that residential is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Um, I think some of the bigger office buildings that are no longer going to be uh, utilized, it's going to cost more money to knock them down. So I think they'll repurpose it either for residential or even not to give the secret sauce, but I think it may even repurpose it for something more like, you know, uh, like vegetation, uh, produce, things like that. Uh, who knows, when when THC starts going, they may start growing, things like that. Anything that used to be in like a greenhouse in Oklahoma or California can now be grown in the Bank of America building or something like that. I think that it's just going to be about repositioning um, and finding out the best ways to take it down from a financing perspective. But I think that here here we are in 2023, Gordon. At this point, nobody's going to recreate the wheel. Right. Nobody's going to bring something out that is just. Oh my God! What is this? It's just going to be a recreation or a fine tune of something that already exists, and commonly is to be more competitive, or to, uh, or or to ultimately maybe take it down a notch from what we're what we're seeing right now. It's uh, it's a parabola, right? It goes up and down like this. So if it gets too hot, it'll go back down. Too cold, it go back up. So on and so forth.
0: Hey. uh old is new and new is old. And that's, uh, quite often uh, the case in real estate. Um, in terms of going and, and taking it back, one of the things we like to do is ask, um, if you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself a little bit of advice, what would be your, uh, your two cents that it could be a minute spiel. It could be, uh, you know, uh, just a couple words. You could, uh, tell young Colby, uh, just a little bit of advice.
1: If I were to tell young Colby coming out of college to do anything other than what he wanted to do, he'd probably laugh in my face. I was like, <laughs> pretty bold back then. But if I were to turn back time, I would absolutely say go straight back to Dallas, get focused directly into a financial services space, whether that's specifically in real estate, specifically in oil and gas, whatever that may be. And learn the number side of the business first, because everything that we do, no matter anything at a a high level, is typically driven by numbers. So I would probably go directly into what I'm doing now. I, I personally feel being in the mortgage space, whether it's commercial or residential, sets you apart from a lot of your competition because you understand how lenders make their decisions. And also, too, the way that your financing is structured ultimately dictates how much money you make. So you know, if you don't understand that, you're going to have a hard time going out to the market, whether you're raising capital for a property you're purchasing or you're trying to get a loan from a lender. If you can't understand how your financing manipulates your product, you're just going to say yes to anything. Oh, 8% rate? Thank you so much, Gordon. I appreciate it. But really, that 8% rate is tanking your cash flow due to the debt service requirement. But instead, you say, well, Gordon, I really appreciate your offer, but based on my underwriting, as you can see here, 8% rate takes my 125 DSER to a 1.0, and I don't think this would be best for my investors. And you can you know, you can go back and forth on that all day. Because let's let's face it, the the lenders are salesmen too, right? The the higher the rate they have, the more money they're making for their bank. We have to always remember that. So for me, if I were to go back, I would tell myself to get directly into what I do today, and I would start much earlier. Because if, if I am where I am today, after just, say, four and a half, five years being directly focused in this, I'm 33 now. I graduated back in my early 20s. I mean, who knows? You know, 10 years from now, I would I, I have no idea or in a in a positive
0: way. So um one of the positives that we like to take out of this um uh, ep- uh each episode on the podcast is uh a little tidbit on um a book or a uh, uh uh and it could be a real estate book, it could be a business book, but what's a book that you've read in your life that's really influenced your career?
1: That's a great question. So I I actually well, I've listened to a lot of books. I'll say that.
0: Uh, oh, that's that's fine. Uh, audible is a, is an acceptable uh, method of, uh, <laughs> of literature around here.
1: There's an app that you should, if you don't already use, it, it's called Headway, H E A D W A Y, and it's it's fantastic. Um, just take a look at it. It like uh, breaks down a lot of books that people commonly read, and it makes it in a very quick, easy to easy to listen to at the gym or whatever it is. Highly recommend it. Um, but a book that I really like and I've actually read more than once is Never Split the Difference. It's about- oh, yeah. Yeah. He's we have a, that right,
0: right here. Right.
1: Yeah. Man, yeah. It's great. It's great. He's like a, a negotiator for many years and he takes that negotiation into common practice. And I feel like anybody that's in, you know, person to person, uh, type of, type of business, it, they would find a value in it. Another book that I really appreciate is Emotional Intelligence 2.0, which it gives a lot of different real-time examples of people interacting, doesn't go their way, and how they reacted and how they should have reacted. And it breaks down kind of the mental process of which these events happen. And it really just allows you to kind of put yourself in those scenarios. And I've found myself many times, whether it's professionally or even at home with family and being able to kind of take a step back. And process it in real time, and it just makes you a little bit better on your feet, a little bit more fluid in your and your verbal skills. And then uh, to, to play on that, uh, the last one I would say is called exactly what to say. Very quick listen; you can listen to it on a car ride wherever you're going. It's like ten different points of exactly what to say and different variations of conversation, and you know things saying just how you can kind of uh, assimilate with somebody how you can rope people in or push them back, whatever that may be. And I think it'd be really beneficial anybody that has a face-to-face, any type of negotiation associated with their profession, Never Split the Difference, Emotional Intelligence, and Exactly What to Say. Those three books would be a highly recommended group.
0: Hey, I I wish I never split the difference and uh, I wish I... uh... I had m- better emotional intelligence, and I certainly wish I knew exactly what to say. So yeah. those are all <laughs> the, those are all uh, books I think that would be a, a great for anybody to read. Um, so I don't know what to say, but we're getting to our last question, and this is the most important question of the final four. And it's what real estate, or, or sorry, what real estate or business person should we be having come on next? Because uh, we try to reach out and find young or old, insightful voices in the industry? And I'm, I'm curious who you'd recommend.
1: That's a good question. You know, I've got, I have a few different folks in my, in my, my thought process now that I think that you could bring on. Uh, a good friend of mine that I actually brought on to my previous life at uh, my last company, his name's Cody, Cody Baker. He and I kind of started our journey around the same time we were actually roommates, uh, back when we first started our journey It got him into real estate and he's just, he's just sharp as a nail. And, uh, he focused specifically on, on industrial and self storage. And, uh, just the way he was able to take, he was an independent uh, business owner focused in, um, helping organize businesses, marketing leads, things like that. And he took the processes and strategies that are utilized as a business consultant. And brought that into what we do today and I'll tell you you know he and I together in the same room when we're working on something is it, it's something special I think he'd be somebody that would have some good insight he's well spoken and he's very intelligent and he's super friendly so I think that would be somebody that would be very good to bring up
0: well we have to have him on uh, that sounds wonderful but before you go, we have one final question for you, and that is, ha- what's the best way for someone to reach out to you and get in contact?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my email is cc at com, cell phone 940-594-8839. Um, I'm always happy to help out, even if it's not a deal that's right on the table. I love to work with folks to kind of get organized, understand next steps, best path forward, and I'll tell you directly if I don't feel like the deal that they're looking at is what they're looking for. Um, I think that is also why I found a lot of success is just be having a little bit of raw ability and my, and my tactics. So shoot me an email, give me a call, um, shoot me a text, send a carrier pigeon, whatever you want to do. <laughs> but I think that, uh, I would be more than happy to help anybody that's looking to get into commercial real estate build commercial real estate, refinance, reposition, whatever that may be. Um, I personally closed around 300 million in closed loans. Um, I own somewhere around 20, 21 million in assets between multifamily self storage, uh, single family development. I'm also invested in a few other oil and gas ventures. So definitely well-rounded. I don't know everything, but I know enough to be dangerous. And I always like making new connections. So, again, cc at cc.cobertsandholdings.com, and uh, happy, to, happy to connect with anybody interested to get in the game.
0: Well, uh, I think you gave us a little bit of dangerous info today, and, and we're grateful for it. So thank you very much for hopping on the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you, Gordon. Really enjoyed it, and I look forward to us doing this again soon. Thanks again
0: to Colby. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating, or a review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.